a different kind of leader captures insights from diverse leaders in healthcare, public health, and academic settings so that our organizations are in a stronger position to grow, innovate, and meet the challenges of our day. To our listeners, thanks so much for joining us. Hello, this is Giselle Corby. I am thrilled to be joined by my colleague, Dr. Ada Adamora, who is the Sarah Graham Keenan Distinguished Professor of Medicine at the UNC School of Medicine and Professor of Epidemiology at the UNC Gilling School of Global Public Health. She earned her undergraduate degree from Cornell, MD from Yale, internal medicine at Boston City, and her fellowship in infectious diseases at Montefiore Einstein. It's interesting. We've been at many of the same institutions, although I don't think we actually met until we met at UNC Chapel Hill. She was associate chief for science at the North Carolina State Health Department's Communicable Disease Control Branch before joining UNC Chapel Hill's faculty in the Division of Infectious Diseases. Her research has been groundbreaking, frankly, on the epidemiology of HIV and STD among minority populations. She's led a variety of studies, including community-based studies, clinical research, secondary data analyses, and population-based case control studies looking at risk factors for heterosexual HIV transmission amongst African Americans. And really, her work was groundbreaking in understanding the importance of sexual network patterns and critical contextual factors such as poverty and racism in establishing and maintaining racial inequalities and inequities in rates of HIV and other STIs in the United States. She's remarkably well-funded, leads a variety of research studies as well as the training programs here at UNC and really across the world and has testified and her, her expertise has led her to testify at the U.S. Congress about drug pricing and about incarceration's role in the epidemiology of HIV amongst Black Americans. In 2019, she was elected to the National Academy of Medicine And for all of those reasons and so many more that you'll hear, I'm thrilled to have Ada join us on the podcast. Ada, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Giselle, and thank you for having me. It's such an honor. It's an honor for me. So we're going to start off asking you about a quote. We ask this from all of our guests that embodies your leadership style or your approach to your career or just a quote that you like and has guided you. So I guess what I would say is do what you like what's important, and what's right. That's about as profound as I can get. That's pretty profound. How has that guided your career? How have you used that philosophy in your career? I I think, you know, basically have pretty much gravitated toward things that I like because I think they're important. I think they're interesting. I think it's very hard for me to really do something well if I don't find it interesting and exciting. It is very important to me to try to do in as much as I can what is right, you know, as opposed to what is most expedient. I mean, this is not, you know, I'm going to try and make myself out as some kind of saint or something, but I, I do think, you know, that is a guiding principle for me is to try to do what's right. Well, sometimes what's right is actually harder. You, know, you say it can be hard to do things that you don't enjoy and you don't think are right, but sometimes doing the right thing is actually the harder thing to do. I and mean, I've seen you and been in places where you've spoken up for that right thing to do and really pushed folks in terms of having the moral courage to do what is the right thing. Where does that stem from? 
You know, I think in the final analysis, doing the wrong thing is probably harder. It's harder to live with yourself because I think about what are people going to say? What will my grandchildren say about, well, you were there. What did you say? You were in the room. Did you say anything? Did you do anything? And the answer should not be, if I was in a position to say or do something, the answer should not be nothing. I mean, I think in the final analysis, it's probably easier in many ways to do what's right. And that crisis of confidence or that rumination that happens when you could have said something but didn't, and how much energy that can take up as well over time. And certainly I know that I'm not as quick-witted as you are in terms of being able to sort of nail the exact issue in a situation to both reveal the moral choice and also to compel folks to do it. And oftentimes I find myself ruminating afterwards. I should have said this. Why didn't I say that? And I would agree over time in terms of the psychic energy, it can be exhausting. Although I would disagree that you are actually at least as quick witted as I am. So, and incredibly eloquent and articulate. So we'll disagree on that one because I think you are more so. (laughs) That means a lot, quite a lot coming from you. Tell our listeners about your career and your leadership journey. So how I got started was I got into infectious diseases, really, because I found infectious diseases to be the most interesting thing. I mean, the most interesting subspecialty. And quite honestly, you know, the people that I saw were the nicest to me, the infectious disease doctors, and they were people that I could imagine being like. So I ended up, I was an infectious disease physician and that was, you know, I was happy with that. I was actually an attending in infectious diseases at Harlem Hospital in New York in the 80s. So we saw lots and lots of HIV, but I met uh, my husband, Paul Godley, and for that reason, moved to North Carolina, or as my mother called it, Carolina. She never (laughs) (laughs) where are you going? (laughs) Carolina, North, South, whatever. It's not here in New York. So I moved there. And initially, you know, I just needed a job. I worked actually at Dorothea Dix in the medical unit of uh, the, it's the state, was the state psychiatric hospital. But I was uh, recruited by the state health department to work in the communicable disease control section, largely focusing on HIV, because that was a very hot, that was a very hot area here in uh, the 1980s. And we did a lot of policy work. In fact, I had always been interested in policy work, I later realized, um, even when I was at Harlem Hospital. In fact, I was sent out to testify to a congressional subcommittee then in the late 80s when I was at Harlem. But anyway, so I was working at the state health department. And I also happened to have an adjunct appointment at UNC. So I attended on the consult service on UNC at UNC occasionally. So I was subsequently recruited to UNC really as a clinician because I, I really had no research skills. And one thing was that, that I would sit in clinic and see a lot of patients, a lot of them Black women. And I noticed that really they did not appear to have really particularly high-risk behavior or characteristics. Now, some of them did, but there was, a, there was a good chunk that did not. And I had also noticed this at Harlem. 
When I was at Harlem Hospital, there were more women who used injection drugs, et cetera. But, you know, it was a real question to me at that time is why is there so much HIV among Black people, particularly Black women? So what happened was that the NIH put out an RFA, a request for applications, for a research grant, and it was actually targeted at minority researchers. I think you had to be a very early stage, very early stage minority researcher. I'm not sure, but I think so. It was to do whatever you wanted related to HIV. So I applied for it. And with the help of Vic Schellenbach, who was, you know, just recently retired as an epidemiology professor at UNC, with the enormous help of Vic Schellenbach, got the grant. And during the course of that, and through some other work as well, got to know some people who were really instrumental and influential in my career, like Seb Giral, Bob Zolilov, Joanne Earp was also on the grant. I mean, there were, there were a lot of people like Ward Cates. I mean, this was a real dream team. So that really is what got me started. And I would say, you know, you know, when you talk about people who were big, major influences on my career, Probably the single biggest influence was my late husband, Paul Godley, who, you know, I remember on one of our first dates, we actually met when he was living here in Chapel Hill and I lived in New York. You know, we, I was talking about my work and he had come here actually to Chapel Hill after his medicine residency. He came here to get a PhD in epidemiology and he simultaneously did an oncology fellowship. And he, we were talking about our work and he said to me, you really ought to go into academics. This is what I was at Harlem Hospital. I barely knew what epidemiology was because we didn't have it in medical school back then. We didn't. <laughs> he said, you should go into epidemiology. After that first date, he sent me a book on epidemiology, which I read and by the Fletchers, you know, that book? Oh, yes. Yeah. Bob and Suzanne Fletcher's book. Mm-hmm. So he really was an enormous influence because aside from pushing me to do some of these things and helping me with my epidemiology homework when I got into the the MPH program, I would make him read every single specific Ames page of every grant that I ever wrote. I made him read them and critique them. I would cry with every grant. I mean, grants have always been very painful for me. I would cry as I wrote every grant. I remember I, I was sitting there Writing one grant, this is later on when I, you know, after I got that grant, I was writing others. I remember I was sitting there and our desks were facing each other down in the basement and the house was a mess and I was having trouble writing this grant. And I thought, oh God, look at me, look at my children are all on we're a mess and the house is a mess and I was crying. And he just looked up and he looked at me. You remember how I was? He just yeah. like, don't let hygiene cloud your mind. Keep writing. <laughs> he was infinitely supportive, and I, I never would have made it without him. I think there's so many people that Paul had that influence on. I remember similarly him just saying, okay, you're going to do this. I'm like, I'm not ready to lead this core in this grant. He's like, and I'm trying to demure. And he's like, no, you don't understand. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you, you're going to do this. 
It's like, you misunderstand. This is not a request. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, he he was, you know, he was enormously supportive. He's also one of the smartest people I've ever known. So Mm -hmm. he, he was a major influence, you know, in terms of getting other grants. I mean, there's certainly other people who helped me. And Vic remained a major mentor and then subsequently a collaborator and, of course, remains a great friend. But they were equally important. I need to also give a shout out to my very first mentor, Frank Lowy, when I was a fellow, who, even though I was in his lab actually doing lab research, and it was pretty clear I was not cut out to do any lab (laughs) research. I mean, he was wonderful. He helped me focus. He helped me get my first job at Harlem Hospital, where I was incredibly happy. I mean, he was perfection. He really was. You know, honestly, you know, the whole concept of mentorship has changed, I think, somewhat. And that for me, I'm not sure that the type of mentors that are being promoted now as examples of mentorship that's not what I would have needed. I didn't really need to go and sit in someone's office once every two weeks. And, you know, I needed people to give me opportunities. I mm. need people to help me when I needed help. And that was the, you know, the Vic Schellenbox and the Frank Lowe's. But I needed people to give me opportunities. And thank God that I, in fact, had those people. People like, you know, Sev Giral at the CDC, who's a major, you know, always on the vanguard of STI, HIV thinking, who would say, I need an article for this supplement. You need to write it. Write this. It's due at this time. I heard you talk about this. Do this. People like Mike Cohen also. I mean, that's how I got into the Fogarty, which was the um, AIDS International Training Research Program that I was principal investigator of for about 14 years, at least. He said he wanted a Fogarty grant at UNC. And he said, so you're going to apply for it. I had no idea what I was doing, but he helped me. He did, in fact, help me. And that was an extraordinary opportunity. So, you know, Fred Sparling, who hired me in the first place, and and Stan Lemon, Fred Sparling gave me opportunities that people, you know, would have said, you know, he had me editing a textbook. His textbook was uh, the huge STD textbook that was written by him and uh, King Holmes. And People said, well, why are you doing that? That's not going to help you get promoted. It was extraordinarily helpful because, number one, it actually taught me a lot about writing, Mm -hmm. how to write and write fast and how to write well. But the other thing is that it introduced me to all the luminaries in the field, you know, because I got to network with them because I was reworking their chapters. So, you know, these were people, all people who gave me opportunities. There weren't many people who looked like me, but Mm -hmm. there were people who helped me. I'm endlessly appreciative of that. It's the opportunity, but the prepared mind as well as the prepared attitude, right? I mean, just as you're saying, others could be have given that opportunity in terms of that textbook and may not have seen the value or even seen the value, but also then sort of mind the value in that work. Otto, you sort of glossed over the 80s and HIV and infectious disease as if it's sort of like every other subspecialty and moment in time. HIV now is a chronic illness, but in the 80s, you and I were in New York City. It was probably amongst the most tragic points in time as a clinician that any of us could have experienced as we're seeing not only our patients, but some of our colleagues actually succumb to the illness. And one of the things that I've noticed is that for those of us that 
sort of emerged during that time, and particularly from my infectious disease colleagues that emerged from that time, it's both sort of the love for clinical medicine as well as advocacy and activism in medicine, more so probably than, than other places, maybe, you know, oncology as well. Can you talk about how that time might have shaped sort of the ways in which you talked about your interest in policy, the ways in which you've sort of thought about your career and going back to your quote about doing the right thing? Well, you know, I think really how that time shaped my thinking was that I remember walking down Lenox Avenue in the late 80s, you know, in New York and Harlem. And really looking as it looked as if every third person either had advanced HIV disease or was a heavy crack smoker Mm -hmm. or both. But then, as I said, you know, I saw women, particularly here in North Carolina, they didn't appear to have been doing much of anything that was unusual. They didn't have a lot of partners. They didn't have, you know, injection drug using partners. You know, I really thought, what is going on here with Black people? There's something else. And what happened was that I heard this talk in the early 90s by Martina Morris about concurrent partnerships, that is partnerships that overlap in time, and the potential, particularly in a relatively closed population, for such partnerships to spread HIV. And it hit me, well, this is almost certainly a big part of the answer. And in fact, it did turn out that concurrent partnerships, well, they're common among all kinds of people. I mean, everybody does this. There is evidence that they are more common in Black people. This is not really because of differences in morals, but rather it has a lot to do with the differential numbers of men and women, which in turn have to do with you know increased mortality of Black men from violence, police violence, and also particularly incarceration, which further exacerbates poverty and decreases the number of Black men and really totally disrupts sexual network patterns. And again, increases poverty, decreases your ability to get a job later on. And it was through thinking through some of these things, and you were trying to shift what was, at least in my memory, the narrative that was dominant at the time, which was that, well, Black people have this because Black people have higher risk behaviors. So, I mean, it's not that Black people don't have high risk behaviors. Some people do. But that's certainly not the biggest explanation. And it's not the most important explanation. I mean, there clearly, there is clearly structural violence that was clearly highlighted to me by the AIDS epidemic. I mean, there's structural violence that is visited upon other minorities, but in particular, Black people, that increases the likelihood of getting diseases like HIV and also having worse outcomes for HIV and other diseases. And I mean, that term was coined, I think, by John Paul Galtung in the 60s and sort of more popularized by Paul Farmer. But it is structural because it's baked in. It's baked into the system. And it's violent because it does violence to people. It decreases people's 
opportunities to live. And it is so ordinary that it's almost invisible. It's taken almost as the natural order of things. I mean, people are just talking about, well, of course, it's more common among Black people. Of course, it's more common among poor people. But exactly why? I have to say, there are a number of people who recognize this and talk about this. I certainly am not the only one. In fact, you know, frankly, some of these things that I was writing about were are so obvious that you tell them the Black people who say, well, yeah, and who didn't know that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so what else is new? <laughs> it was a matter of sort of making sure that the argument was introduced into the that particular narrative space and having evidence to go along with it. And again, there were many people who were doing this. I certainly was not the only one. I don't want to it, make it seem that way. I mean, you may not have been the only one, but you were certainly amongst the first and in the most sort of compelling way to the idea of rewriting or reframing or creating theory or invoking theory, this theoretical model that went beyond just individual behavior. The idea that people's opportunities are constrained and that constraint is a result of the structural violence, the structural factors that lead people to be in the situations they are in the networks to be what they are. I remember reading that article. I remember my sister reading it, actually, and she's not even in medicine, and she reading about your work and just it kind of, you know, it's one of those times where the kaleidoscope sort of clicks into place and you're realizing not only is this a lens that I need to look at this particular disease through, but all others through as well. And again, it's sort of recapitulated in this pandemic, right? Again, early narrative of the COVID-19 pandemic was around individual risk, and not really seeing the structural factors. And over and over again, whether it was testing, whether it was vaccines, what have you, it continues to devolve initially, at least in the pandemic, to an individual behavior rather than thinking about the structural factors that have led to the inequalities. Exactly. And we're seeing it in treatment as well. As we think about, and given the arc of your career, What do you see as the challenges that leaders are facing now? What do you see as sort of key challenges that need to be addressed now or opportunities? So, you know, I think these are difficult, wild times. I I have to say, I have not seen times like these in all the years that I've been alive. It's bizarre in that despite all the progress that's been made in terms of civil rights, We now, on the other hand, people who feel elected officials who feel quite comfortable spouting racism. You know, we have erosion of the Voting Rights Act. You know, we have almost complete loss of reproductive rights. We have people trying to erode democracy and return us to fascism. So this is a very strange, really bizarre, in many ways, I hate to say this, sort of apocalyptic feeling era. I hate to say that, but I actually do feel that way. I think that among the challenges for people now, number one, the internet. It's a tremendous opportunity for learning and for sharing new information. But at the same time, it's being widely used for promoting and disseminating lies to the detriment of public health and public safety. I'd say the second huge challenge for leaders now is the erosion of truth. 
And even the sense that it matters whether you tell the truth or just straight up lie. I'd say this is really, these are incredible challenges. You know, the things that you highlight are things so outside of health, healthcare, medicine. And yet for us to be effective in the work that we do, we, we're having to attend to those influences in ways that we've never had to before. You know, we've been able to be, frankly, fairly insular and, and sort of as a profession, as a community of healthcare providers, of scientists and sort of health leaders, public health leaders, we've been able to sort of look inward and stay inward. And now for us to be effective, we must engage in these ways. And we often don't have the skill set to be able to do that. Right. It's difficult because science, in fact, life is filled with nuances, information changes, our understanding of situations changes. These communications don't really lend themselves to yeah. sound bites, but that's the era that we're in, sort of a soundbite type of mm-hmm. communication style, a Twittered communication right. style, where ideas are you know really quite nuanced and are not best suited for that type of communication. Mm-hmm. And there's a real gotcha mentality. Well, I thought you said that. I thought you said that. Well, do you were lying to us about that? Well, wait a second. Um, right. you know, this is what we knew to be true at the time. That's a real challenge. Tremendous. And the crisis communication work that we do still doesn't, just as you say, we need to think in sound bites. Think about how can we craft that Twitter version of what we need to say. And we're not trained for that typically in our professional lives. Yeah. Otta, you've been in different places. You mentioned sort of that transition part of it for a personal reason to, was it Carolina? <laughs> was your mom's <laughs> to North Carolina? And then the transitions and opportunities that you've taken advantage of um, that have been presented to you by your mentors and sponsors. How do you juggle those commitments and how do you make choices about sort of what you're going to take on next? Particularly in like the Fogarty Grant you may not have had felt like you had the expertise, but clearly have been successful in that realm. How do you make those choices? Is there a calculus? Is there, do you do a pro-con list or is it just a gut? How do you think about those things? You know, in terms of juggling multiple commitments, I try to sort things in my mind into what's urgent or slash emergent versus important to move things along. And then everything else, the sort of everyday things. And, you know, honestly, I'm not particularly good at multitasking. I mean, everything that I do that's important to me requires a lot of my effort and energy. I work with a lot of people. Many of my colleagues are really brilliant. I mean, truly genius level people for whom research is you know, patient care is really just quite easy for them and seems to require no effort. And I have a sense that, and they seem to be able to do a lot of things at once very easily and very well. And, and that's just not true for me. And I imagine that, you know, I can look a little bit selfish when I won't pitch in and help in some situations, but it's really only just because I just don't have the bandwidth to deal with a ton of things at the same time. So I tend to focus in on what's important. And, you know, it can be a little bit problematic, you know, like if I'm writing a grant or if I have a particular deadline for paper, it's, you know, I just hone in on that and do that. 
and sort of ignore everything else that I can. And that's basically the way I do it. One thing I thought you were going to ask me is what tools or resources do I use to stay on track? I mean, I use very detailed to-do lists I with dates. I live and die by my to-do list. Mm-hmm. You know, it has to be electronic because if I lose it, you know, I mean, I can't risk losing it. It has to be something that's <laughs> backed up into some type of cloud. <laughs> you know, and I still miss things. I mean, you know, I still fall behind and miss things, but that's what I have to do. I focus. If I'm giving a talk, I focus like a laser on that. And that's actually it's the reason why I don't necessarily agree to give a lot of talks if I yeah. don't have it. Because if subject isn't interesting to me, I just can't bring myself to do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've got to have something new to say or something interesting or something that I think is interesting to say. But that's that's basically how I do it. I love that. I want to turn now to the questions we ask all of our guests. This is a time for individuals that have been working on inequalities. This is sort of the window that's been opened over the last three years during this pandemic. Has been three or has been 30 years, it sometimes feels like, or three seconds. It's like the time warp of COVID, where so many folks are being called upon to do more and even feeling compelled personally to do more because of the opportunity that's sort of presenting itself. But as I've said before, you can't pour from an empty cup. So what what do you do for self-care? What are you doing to take care of yourself in this moment in time? You know, I'm like not really good at a lot of things. So the things that give me pleasure are reading and listening to music and talking, talking to my friends, catching up with my friends and family. Yeah, that's what I do. The other big thing is, you know, prayer and meditation. That for me is huge. I mean, I don't go a day without praying. That is enormous for me for my self-care. I do not go a day without doing that. What is your favorite leadership book or a book that you recommend to others? So I thought about that. I have two books that I recommend. One of them, I think, is known to a lot of people who are likely listening to this podcast. I don't have really any leadership books I read, but one book that I really recommend is The New Jim Crow. It's Mm -hmm. Must Reading by Michelle Alexander that talks about the role of mass incarceration in the society. That is a must read. Another book is a book called Democracy in Chains by Nancy McLean, Mm. who's a Duke historian. This is must-reading. This is about how the radical right played the long game in America and won in some ways, at least for now. And this is a must-read for anyone who really wants to understand how the United States has such striking policies that are so antagonistic to the well-being of people in this country. I mean, policies that are obviously wrong, like the absence of universal health care failure of some states, like the one that we're living in, we're in mm-hmm. to expand Medicaid, this type of thing. So those are two books that I highly, highly recommend. And what are you reading or listening to now? So what I'm reading right now, two things. Well, 
I've been reading Dope Sick, which is oh. really interesting. And uh, a book that I really enjoy is Deacon King Kong by James McBride. That is a great book. <laughs> I don't know either one of them. Tell us about both. <laughs> well, Dope Sick, they're totally different books. Dope Sick, actually, that was made into a series, uh, I guess, on, I think, Netflix. It's about the opioid epidemic, uh, largely in Appalachia. Deacon King Kong is this fun book by James McBride. You, you just have to read it. Okay. Deacon King Kong. I've read his other book, The Color of Water, which was a beautiful book. I read that cover to cover. I stayed up all night reading it. It was just a beautiful book, but I had not heard of Deacon King Kong, so I'm definitely going to look for that. <laughs> what do you think separates good leaders from great leaders? Probably courage. And that's, you know, one thing I'm excited about right now is the next generation of leaders. I just came back from the infectious disease meetings, ID meetings, you know, ID infectious disease. Mm -hmm. It's called ID week. And there are some great leaders who are emerging now. They're not only brilliant, but they're striking for their courage in their pursuit of health equity. I mean, these people have exciting things to say, and they are unafraid to speak out. People like uh, Dr. Michelle Morse, uh, doctors Tazan Bell and Mari Lachwayo. I mean, so I'm I'm excited and hopeful. Yeah, I think you know what separates good from great is courage. People who are not afraid to speak their mind and do. And I'm not talking about just speaking for the sake of speaking, but do the right thing. People mm -hmm. who won't say, "Well, I you know I won't do this because I'll lose my job." if there's something that's very important, and you'll get somebody that's worse than me. So I'm just going to do the most expedient thing right now, because I think we've seen that. We've seen that. <laughs> we've definitely seen that. <laughs> Otto, what advice would you give to your younger self? Now, that's a good question. I don't know that I would have any advice that would really work. I'll tell you why. I would say stay prepared because you're right. Opportunity favors the prepared mind. So I would say that, you know, a lot of the, my path has been one that I really didn't plot and plan for. And it's certainly not the way that we tell people to approach their careers. So I think, you know, normally looking back, you would tell those people, you know, really think about where you want to go and where you want to be and how you want to end, that would never have worked for me. None of this would have ever occurred to me. So I don't have anything intelligent to say to my younger self, except get prepared and stay prepared. Be ready so you don't have to get ready. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Ada, thanks so much for joining us today. This has been just a wonderful conversation. It's so always wonderful to spend time with you. Thank you so much, Giselle. It's been a pleasure talking with you. This episode was hosted by Giselle Corby and produced by Rachel Quinto. Our production assistant is Shelby McClam. It contains music by Mix Out and Chill Out Lounge and is sound engineered by Sam Williams. Visit our website at differentkindofleader.com to find resources for your leadership toolkit and hear more from other leaders. If you like what you've heard, please rate us and leave a comment wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps others to find us. 
like and comment on Facebook and Instagram at Different Kind of Leader, all one word, as well as on Twitter at DK Leadership. As always, we want to hear from our listeners, so please contact us at differentkindofleader at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. This is A Different Kind of Leader.